So glad you're here with us at our study in Philippians, and we're going to begin with prayer. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We're blessed, Lord, that we have the privilege of meeting together to study it and to listen to its truth and then to take it by your spirit into our own lives, that we might live it out. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to be strengthened in our faith as we take into our hearts, our minds, the truths of your word, and that we commit ourselves to living in accordance with it. So, Father, we bless you for this epistle. We thank you that in your grand providence that you have kept your word available to us, and that we have it not only in in the Greek in this case, but also in our own languages. Lord, we bless you for that, and we thank you. We know that your word abides forever. And, Lord, we pray that it would be precious to us and that, by your Spirit, your word would have its due effect in all of our lives. And so we trust you for that. We pray for our time together tonight that, indeed, would be a blessing to each of us. And we bless you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Okay, we are going to read uh, the first chapter of Philippians. We're using the ESV today. You know that oftentimes, well, every week we try to find a different uh, translation to read just to compare them together. There are some that I just don't include because I find them to be poor translations. Um, but um, we continue to rotate, and tonight we're reading the ESV. I, of course, will substitute Messiah and Yeshua for Christ Jesus wherever it's found in the text. That's not something that the ESV has done, but just something I like to do to remind myself and to remind you uh, that we're talking about the one who is indeed Yeshua HaMashiach, the one who is the promised and reigning Messiah. All right, Philippians 1 in the ESV, the uh, English Standard Version. Paul and Timothy servants of Messiah Yeshua, to all the saints in Messiah Yeshua who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua Messiah. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Messiah Yeshua. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Messiah Yeshua. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Messiah, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Yeshua Messiah to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for the Messiah. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Messiah from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill, 
The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Messiah out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Messiah is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Yeshua Messiah, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Messiah will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Messiah, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Messiah, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Messiah Yeshua because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Messiah, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Messiah you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So once again, this is just a magnificent uh, first chapter of the epistle, where Paul, uh, we, we kind of get to know him a little better when he expresses the things that he's experiencing, the suffering, and yet the joy that he has in serving the Lord, even while he's in prison. So last week we we ended with just this first part of uh, verse 18, so that's where I want to begin. We we read that, what then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, the Messiah is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Paul now expresses his own affirmation to trust in God's all-encompassing power and promises. You know, just from the very beginning, we have to remind ourselves that we're unable to do this if we don't know about God's encompassing power and promises. And where do we learn that? Well, we learn it first and foremost from the Word itself, from the Scriptures. And what is the enemy's, uh, always his plan? To try to somehow remove the Scriptures from the people of God. Whether it's by getting us, uh, uh, get our heads turned to something other than the scriptures, whether it's the fact that there are some who find more pleasure in uh, various forms of of congregating together or worship or something uh, else besides the scriptures. Now, all of those are necessary, being together and worshiping the Lord together. But the bedrock, the foundation, are the scriptures because it's there that we come to know about God's all-encompassing power and his promises. 
So instead of harboring ill feelings against those who were seeking to undermine his authority and position as an apostle of Yeshua, he commits himself to rejoicing. This is a genuine display of faith. For the whole reality of eternal salvation is, in every aspect, the work of God. And he will lose none of those he has chosen. In other words, we may now rejoice in the finality that is promised to us of our salvation. But what is the very basis of Paul's joy? That Yeshua is proclaimed to be the true, eternal, promised Messiah of the Tanakh, and that he has proven this conclusively by his incarnation, his death, and resurrection on the third day. Clearly, there is nothing that proves more obviously that he is who he said he is than by the fact that he rose from the dead on the third day, and there were many who saw him, some of whom wrote their experiences, and we have them now in the Gospels. And there's nothing else in the history of humankind that even parallels that. Yes, truly, Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Eternal One, the Creator, the Word. He's the door by whom we have entrance into the very presence of God. So here we have an excellent example of how all who are in any position of leadership ought to feel toward those who may seek to undermine their work or to diminish their effectiveness. If we are truly depending upon the Lord, then we are able to rejoice even when others may seek to diminish our effectiveness. And you can imagine that in Paul's case, there were many who wanted him out of the way. As we, we talked about earlier in, in other weeks, one just has to wonder, how would we accept in our day someone who had the background of the Apostle Paul and yet who has come to true faith in the Messiah? Would we allow the terrible things that he did before he came to faith color his life for us now so that we would want nothing to do with him? You can imagine that there were those who had that very experience because there may have been close family members or friends or whatever who were uh, uh, imprisoned or some of them even put to death by what Paul was doing at that time, or Saul, if you wanted to use his name then. We must... No, rather, set our focus upon the very thing Paul emphasized and find true joy in this, that the Messiah Yeshua is proclaimed and that his work of procuring salvation for all who have been given to him will be accomplished even as the prophets foretold and the inspired scriptures make clear. So he talks about that he would, he would rejoice regardless of whether there were those who were, uh, t- uh proclaiming Yeshua in pretense or in truth. He's just happy and grateful that Messiah is proclaimed. Now this phrase expounds upon the previous only that in every way, by indicating that even those who seek to discount the message of the gospel as Paul was presenting it may, in God's sovereignty, actually be used to cause others to investigate why they are so intent on discounting Paul and his message. I mean, you can only imagine that if there were those who had never really ever met Paul, and yet others were going around saying what a terrible person he was and what he had done and what he didn't do and so forth and so on, there might well be those who said, I need to find out more about this Paul. And when they did, they would discover what he was teaching, 
there may have been many who took his teachings and passed them on to others. And when they, so those who were trying to do away with Paul's reputation may have actually been used of the Lord to bring others to wonder, why is he, why are these people so against this man? What did he do? And when they went to discover it, what would they hear? They would hear the message of the gospel. Then, in their seeking to know what all the turmoil is about, God may use such searching to open their eyes to the truth about Yeshua and draw them to saving faith. Thus, though the enemies of God may think they are surely able to defeat the gospel, they fail to realize that their war against the truth can even be used of God to cause a desire in people to find out what the gospel actually is. Calvin puts it this way, considering the turmoil that followed the Great Reformation, he notes, For God sometimes accomplishes an admirable work by means of wicked and depraved instruments. Accordingly, he says that he rejoices in a happy result of this nature, because this one thing contented him, if he saw the kingdom of Christ increasing. And at this day we rejoice that the progress of the gospel is advanced by many who, nevertheless, had another design in view. But though Paul rejoiced in the advancement of the gospel, yet, had the matter been in his hand, he would never have ordained such persons as ministers. We ought, therefore, to rejoice if God accomplishes anything that is good by means of wicked persons, but they ought not, on that account, to be either placed by us in the ministry or looked upon as Christ's lawful ministers. So, thus we may be encouraged by Paul's words here, for even in our own times, there are those who give their energy to discounting the truth of God and the good news of salvation in Yeshua, yet such such false teachers cannot diminish the power of the gospel message, for the gospel is empowered by the Ruach himself, opening the minds of all who are called to receive it. And maybe one of the more famous statements of Paul is this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Have you considered that, that the gospel is the very power of God? It's what he uses to bring those he has chosen unto himself, and just to think that we can partner with him in that enterprise is fantastic. This reality that God will use the gospel message to bring the elect to himself and grant them eternal life ought to encourage us all the more to share the gospel with others as often as possible. In so doing, we're God's servants working together with him to accomplish eternal realities. You know, you don't have to... You don't have to say, well, uh, boy, I don't know how to do that. I'm not sure. You can think, first of all, just by planting a seed. You can ask somebody, do you ever read the Bible? I mean, sometimes just in passing, you might meet somebody. You might sit next to somebody on the airplane or on a bus or something to that effect. Maybe when you're standing in line at the grocery store or wherever it may be, you might have the opportunity to talk with someone and just plant a seed. The seed then can be used of the Spirit to to bring others alongside of that person and help them to move toward the very promise of eternal life in the gospel. Now, this phrase that's actually part of verse 18 I'm putting it with 19, and I put it in brackets, yes, and I will rejoice. So he's talking about 
he's, he's talking about what he's said before, but now he's combining it with what he says here in verse 19. He says, For, or because I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Messiah Yeshua. The final clause, as I said, of verse 18, as found in our English translations, seems most likely to, buy, to be directly connected to verse 19 as describing Paul's joy, knowing that even though he is currently incarcerated, this does not and will not impede the furtherance of the gospel message. As a result, he proclaims that regardless of the outcome of his pending trial, remember, Paul is in prison now waiting a, a trial to see whether or not he's going to be executed or uh, declared not guilty. Uh, he was accused of all kinds of things, of riots and and uh, uh, talking against the the established government and so forth and so on. But he is ready for the future. Why? Because he knows who holds it. God is in control, and he trusts him fully. What a lesson for us. Now, none of us at this point are in that same situation as Paul was, where we're being incarcerated and possibly uh, facing a death penalty for our uh, convictions and for our sharing the gospel but he was and the powers that be felt they needed to shut him up he was having far too much influence and so the pharisees and some of the uh the leaders of the of the jewish people were uh persuading the roman officials to do something about this man so, as a result, he proclaims that regardless of the outcome of his pending trial, whether he would be acquitted or receive the death penalty, he is able to rejoice. Let me just think about that. As I was contemplating that this week, I just thought to myself, wow, do we need to fear the future that somehow we'll be in a place where we might be very weak in our faith and, and not stand for what we know to be true? We don't have to fear that. Why? Because if we come into such times, if we're under such uh, duress as those who would seek to uh, imprison us or even do worse because of our faith, God will give us the power, the strength. He will cause our faith to grow so that we will stand firm even in a day like that. So this clearly demonstrates the strong and maturing faith that Paul possessed and thus presents to us an example of maturing faith for which we all must desire and strive. We can't, you know, the athletics is a perfect illustration of this. You can't just not train and then hope that when you get out into the field, whether whatever you're playing, uh, whatever uh, game you're playing, you, if you haven't trained for it, you won't be able to perform well. So how are we training for the future? There's only one way to do it, and that's to continue to immerse ourselves in the truth of God and to seek to live it out day by day and to grow in our acknowledgement and our love and our desire to please God and give him glory in everything that we do. Well, such faith in God, which allowed Paul to rejoice in spite of his life-threatening situation, was not some kind of morbid, nothing-matters-anyway perspective. He hadn't come to the point where he says, ah, oh, nothing matters. No, of course not. Rather, he shows that faith allows a firm and solid knowledge 
that whatever the outcome may be, he would be able to bring glory to Yeshua, which is the ultimate goal a believer must have. And I just can't, I know I stress that a lot, but I can't stress it enough. We have been saved ultimately to bring glory to God. We can practice that now. How are we doing in our personal lives, in our family life, with our friends, with our acquaintance, where we work, in our given local communities? How are we doing? Are we bringing glory to God? Are our lives showing forth the value of what it means to walk with the Lord? Paul goes on to say, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. It appears likely that Paul has Job 13:16 in mind as he pens the last part of this phrase, for his words here are identical with the Greek of the Septuagint. This will turn out for my, literally, salvation, for my deliverance. The Greek that Paul has here is word for word from the Septuagint of Job 13:16, And as I contemplated that, I thought to myself, I wonder how well Paul had Job memorized. Do you suppose that he was able to have parchments and so forth or manuscripts or whatever of Job? It's possible. We know that in some of his imprisonments, he did. He asked, he asked people to bring them to him. Okay. But you have to believe that he saw in Job the kind of faith that he himself desired, not to give up in the face of very difficult circumstances. And so I just think it's interesting that it's almost as though he quotes Job 13:16 here, when he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. How does Paul have confident assurance that he knows, and it's the Greek word oida, uh, his current circumstances will eventuate in his deliverance. Well, it's interesting because there are a couple, two words that are primarily used for the idea of knowing something in the Greek. Oida is one of them, and gnosko is the other. Uh, but the verb oida, as distinguished from gnosko, is the knowledge of intuition or satisfied conviction or absolute knowledge. So what Paul is saying is that I am so convinced I know it to be true that eventually he will be delivered. Now we're going to learn in the coming verses how what this deliverance means because it actually, as we'll see, is the word salvation. His unshakable confidence is because by faith he knew that God would use his situation for his glory regardless of what took place in the future. Thus, we should not take his words here to indicate that somehow he had received some special revelation from the Lord regarding the outcome of his impending trial. It doesn't, we don't get from the words that he's penned that it means that he's had a vision from the Lord that says he's going to be acquitted. Rather, the Greek word translated deliverance by most English translations, and that's true of most of them, is actually soteria. Uh, which can carry the sense of salvation in a spiritual sense, that is, eternal salvation for all who are in Messiah, but may also be used to denote being saved physically from a bad situation in this life. As an example, Luke uses soteria in Acts 7.25 when he writes about Moses, who was appointed by God to lead Israel out from under the bondage of the Egyptians. And he, that is Moses, Suppose that his brethren understood that God was granting them 
deliverance, literally salvation through him, but they did not understand. In other words, God had appointed Moses to, you know, and eventually Aaron and others, to lead them out of Egypt and into freedom. And here we have that same word, salvation, but here it means deliverance, in this this case, from uh, Egyptian uh, rule. Thus, it seems very likely that Paul chose to use the Greek word soteria here because it can describe both eternal salvation as well as being rescued from a very difficult situation in this life. This becomes clear in the following verse where Paul writes, whether by life or by death. This teaches us that the more we grow in our faith, the more we will be enabled fully to entrust our future to the Lord, knowing that as we walk the life of faith, he will be glorified regardless of what difficulties we may face in the future, for he will enable us to endure whatever may come for his glory and for good. That's kind of a hard one, isn't it? I mean, when we consider the future, and, you know, we're here uh, at this time, this pandemic that has basically uh, grounded a great many businesses and caused all kinds of other issues with many, many, many people uh, having died from this disease. Uh, and yet here we are. How do we handle that? How do we think and talk about it? Do we believe that God will keep us for his honor and for his glory? No matter what happens, and even if it means that we were to uh, die and go to be with him, well, wouldn't that be wonderful as well? Not that we're looking for death. No, of course not. God wants us to live for his glory. But even if and when we die, we go to be with him. Do we believe that? Do we honestly believe it? then that will enable us to grow strong against any fear of the future. Thus we see once again that Paul offers a true example of a godly leader. For rather than concerning himself about his own reputation, which others were attempting to tarnish, he maintains the ultimate goal of his life to be honoring and glorifying Yeshua, and thus fully depending upon what God has promised. We read in Isaiah 41.10, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, surely. I will help you, surely. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now granted, in the context that's being said to the remnant of Israel, but we all who are in the Messiah have been grafted into that remnant. And these promises are made to the remnant of Israel those who were trusting in him. And therefore it is our promises, our promise too, whether, uh, regardless of whether we're, we're Jewish or non-Jewish, whatever, we're in the Messiah. And so this promise is ours. Don't fear. I'm with you. Don't be anxious. I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's a promise that gives us great joy. That means Not that we're looking for trouble, no. We're not looking for uh, persecution, of course not. But if trouble comes, we know that he will strengthen us and be with us 
to walk through those difficult times and do so for his glory. In like manner, we remember the words of John the baptizer, who was informed by some of his followers that Yeshua was also baptizing people, and that many of those who were previously following John were now following Yeshua. While his friends thought this would alarm John, he rather assures them of his life's mission. We read this in John 3:28 through 30 You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. This is John's words. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. All who truly desire to be used of the Lord in whatever aspect they may fulfill within the local body of believers must have this same perspective. Ultimately, our goal in life must be to give Yeshua the glory and to help each other grow in our ability to honor Him in all things. It's unfortunate that I would say throughout time, there are those who gain some kind of a leadership position, uh, some kind of a, a well-known uh, uh, position amongst uh, believers. And it seems that there are some of them who do everything they can to to turn the spotlight on themselves. <laughs> well, that's not what we want. That's not what we should want. We want the work that we do, if we're teachers or whatever uh, aspect that we fulfill within the body of the Messiah. We want people to look at Yeshua. We want to turn their eyes to him and to become more and more like him. So he talks about that his deliverance would come through their prayers. Paul now gives two factors which will bring about his deliverance. The first is prayer. The Greek word here translated prayers is deomai, which often carries the sense of to ask for something pleadingly. In other words, to plead for something, and thus to request the specific hand of the Lord in a given situation. Here, once again, we see that the scriptures teach us the efficacy of prayer. For God has determined to bring his own people to partner with him in accomplishing his sovereign will and providential plan. You know, I've talked with many people who uh, are squeamish about the whole idea of God's sovereignty and predestination and determination and so forth and so on, but the scriptures are very clear about this. So then, oftentimes I hear people saying, well, then why, why pray? God's got everything planned, he's just going to do it. The answer to that is very simple. God is a relational God, and he intends to use us to accomplish his plans when it comes to the gospel and letting others know the truth of it. As I've said before, God does not simply pull levers or push buttons. He works together with his people. He empowers us by his spirit, and we have the privilege to work together with him to bring about what he has ordained. Surely in all of our prayers we must pray that God's will should be accomplished. But even in the discipline of prayer, we recognize more and more that we are his servants to do his bidding and thus to partner with him in accomplishing his purposes in the sphere of our own lives, wherever we may be. Have you considered that? <laughs> Have you thought about that recently? What? I am working with God to bring about his ordained plan? Yes. 
you have people that you meet that no one else does in this audience. (laughs) You have family. You have opportunities that are unique to yourself. And if we commit ourselves and seek God's strength and help to do what he wants us to do in those specific situations that we each have, then God will be blessed and be glorified as we give forth the good news of the gospel to others who need to hear it. And then it's not only prayer, but secondly, it's the provision of the Spirit of Messiah Yeshua. The second factor which will bring about his deliverance, Paul says, is the very presence and leading of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. The word here translated provision by the NESB is the Greek epikoregia, which is not found in the Septuagint, never used, but does occur one other time in the Apostolic Scriptures. So Paul is is using some very unique vocabulary here, and it's found also in Ephesians 4.16. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Messiah, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, there's our word, according to this proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Isn't that a wonderful verse from Ephesians 4? What does it tell us? What does it teach us? That in the same way that Paul was saying that he had the provision of the Spirit of Messiah Yeshua, so each of us also do have it who are in him. And what does he provide? What provision does he give us to accomplish that unique thing within the body of Messiah that we each must do. And when we combine our efforts, when we combine our work together, we come to the whole of what the local community should be. And when we do that, we not only build each other up and care for each other and help each other, but we enable one another to fulfill the very tasks that God has given us to do. So this verb form Epikoregeo is used by Paul in Colossians 1.19, this verbal form. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied, there's our word, and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. So basically Paul is saying the same thing here, but he's using the body metaphor. Even as the ligaments help hold the bones together, and the muscles therefore have the opportunity to cause the the legs, the hands, the feet, so forth and so on, to to grasp, to turn, to work. So he has supplied the body of Messiah in the same way. And how has he done that? Well, some are doing one operation, another uh, another operation, but putting those together makes the body work the way it should. There's no one in the body of Messiah who is superfluous. There's no one in the body of the Messiah who has nothing to uh, add to the whole. Every one of us have been gifted by the Spirit of God to do the work that together we would accomplish what God intends. Thus, by understanding how this word is used, we understand that Paul is not speaking here of a special anointing of the Ruach, that is, some kind of special second filling of the Ruach. Rather, he is describing the work of the Spirit in the believer's life 
who strengthens and guides the believer as we seek his wisdom and the direction he gives in decision-making, supplying the necessary spiritual strength to endure and gain the victory in times of trials. Surely the Ruach strengthened Paul, enabling him to overcome any fear of what would be his lot in the future. But the work of the Ruach also enabled him even to rejoice, knowing that whatever would come to pass, it would be the Lord's doing, and would therefore give the opportunity to glorify him. And again, as I was contemplating these verses uh, and working on them and so forth, it just amazed me to see the, the strength of Paul's faith. Oh, that we all would have such faith that there would be nothing in the future that would cause us to be worried or somehow fretting or somehow concerned that we're not going to be able to do what God wants us to do. God will give us the strength at each turn, at each quarter of of the uh, uh, game or whatever we metaphor we want to use. Wherever we are and whatever we're called to do, he will give us the strength to do it insofar as we trust him and obey him, and wait upon him for the victory that we need. Now, this is the only place in the apostolic scriptures that we find the exact combination, the spirit of Messiah Yeshua. Twice we find the spirit of Yeshua, and once the spirit of Messiah, and once the spirit of the Son in Galatians 4, 6. The fact that the spirit of Messiah Yeshua is found in our text made it one of the texts that were central to the theological controversy in the early Christian church. Now, I know I'm, I'm jumping into some church history here and some uh, maybe not so well-known theology, but at any rate, it's one of these. Our verse was one that uh, was central in this ar argument. So uh, in this regard, we should note that in Galatians 4, 6, Paul states, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So the spirit of his son, what does that mean? Does that mean the Holy Spirit? Does that mean the son himself? Is the father the one who sent? Yes, all of those things. Because here we confront the mystery of what has become known as the Trinity or the Triunity of God. God is one, but he reveals himself as Father, as Son, and as Spirit. The Spirit enabled Yeshua in his incarnation. Yeshua here is obviously uh, one who participates in the whole sending of the Spirit. But more often than not, we have in the Scriptures that the Father sent the Spirit. So it says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. Does it mean the Spirit of his Son, in other words, Yeshua's Spirit, or does it mean the Spirit who does the work to show forth the Son? Well, yes, all of that. The giving of the Spirit is here attributed to God the Father, who sends the Spirit of his Son. In the history of the Christian Church, the issue of the procession of the Spirit how the Spirit was given, became a hotly debated topic, sufficient to produce severe and lasting division between the Greek and Latin church of the ninth century. Now, part of the issue going on here was the debate over the deity of Yeshua. And there were some who were saying that uh, only the Father could send the Spirit because Yeshua was not divine. And, uh, and of course, that caused all kinds of 
difficulty. The scriptures are very clear that Yeshua is divine, that he has no beginning and no ending, that he is one with the Father and one with the Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are the one true and only God. Together they form the Godhead. It is a mystery, I grant, something that we cannot fully unravel and we don't want to. But we have to say both are true. There is one and only one God, a complete and infinite unity, and yet there is Father, Son, and Spirit. The Eastern Church regards the doctrine of the single procession of the Spirit, that the Spirit was given by the Father alone, as the cornerstone of orthodoxy. That's the Eastern Church. The Western Church held that the Spirit proceeds both from the Father and from the Son. So this debate came to be known as the filioque, controversy, the Latin term meaning of the Son. In 589 CE, the Nicene Creed was expanded to include the Filioque Clause so that the confession read, and we believe in the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, and the division over the issue ensued. The whole matter was primarily an argument of metaphysical theology and an extension of the Trinity doctrines against the Arian heresies of the day. Now, of course, the Arian were those who denied the deity of Yeshua. The primary texts upon which the controversy raged were John chapters 14 through 16. And uh, if you're interested in pursuing that more, I've given you a note in the footnote there uh, of a well-known work that you could read and, and find the whole story. But I thought it was at least worth uh, talking about, since the text that we're on right now was one of the texts that was used in the conflict. Here, once again, we see the mystery of the Godhead, for the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are together infinitely one, while yet having individual personage. And thus, according to Paul in Galatians 4.6, by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we are enabled to address our God as Abba, the Aramaic word which originally was a term of endearment. And so we read in 1 Timothy 3.16, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. What does it mean, great is the mystery of godliness? Great is the mystery of the whole revelation of the one and only true God. It's a mystery. What does that mean? We're never going to be able to understand it completely and fully to the point where we have no questions, since we're finite. But we can believe a mystery. We must believe a mystery. Or we could never fathom the depths of all that relates to identifying God in all of his greatness. Matthew 28.19 is one of those texts which uh, makes it clear that the whole gospel is wrapped around Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The idea here is clearly that there is a, a an infinite unity while God reveals himself as Father and as Son and the Holy Spirit as distinct from each other. And then finally, verse 20 for our time together uh, this week. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Messiah will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Here once again we see the core of Paul's faith, for he had fully given himself to the care and providence of the God he knew to be his Lord and Savior, 
and therefore had entrusted his future to him, knowing by faith and by the inner working and power of the Ruach that whatever he would face, he would be enabled to glorify the one who had redeemed him and whom he served to bring him glory. He says, according to my earnest expectation and hope. My earnest expectation, and it's just one word in the Greek, I've given it to you there, apokaradokia, Paul is describing that which he eagerly awaited. This clearly describes his faith in God and the promises of the scriptures, for he could only anticipate two possible outcomes, that he would be vindicated and set free, or that he would be found guilty and executed. The only other time this word describing earnest expectation is used in the apostolic scriptures is in Romans 8.19, and here it is attributed to the whole creation. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Now that's another way to understand this, this word or to translate it. Do we await eagerly the future, no matter what it brings, knowing that ultimately we will be with the Lord? So I have to be careful here. I don't, you know, there are some who, my father used to say, are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. No, we are to be busy with the work of our Lord. We are to be witnesses of his greatness. We are in our lives to give him the glory and the honor. But we do so always having our eyes fixed upon the time when we would be with Yeshua himself. It is interesting to contemplate the fact that in the same way that the whole creation anticipates the final consummation of all things, and in that anticipation still groans, even as a woman giving birth to a new life, which is, you know, how the word is also used. So Paul likewise anticipated the future in which whatever would come to pass, he would be kept and empowered by God to glorify him. This is the kind of strong faith that every one of us must seek to have. Moreover, when Paul writes here of his hope, Elpis, this does not mean he is hoping for something of which he is not certain, as we often use the English word hope. Rather, the two terms earnest expectation and hope are clearly used together as describing Paul's full confidence that God would enable him to be a witness of his power and glory, no matter what the future events held. As Gordon Fee writes, These two words presume a near unity of ideas, so that hope does not mean wishfulness, but something like hope-filled expectation, as in most cases in the New Testament. Therefore, hope is full of content in the sense that it reflects the highest degree of certainty about the future. When we say that he is our hope, it means that we have set our our lives, our future, upon his promises, and we know them to be sure. Okay, uh, that's where we will uh, stop for tonight. Thanks for coming, and look forward to being with you next week, Lord willing, as we continue our study in this great epistle to the Philippians.